Welcome to a happy place. This is the Live Happy Now podcast. Hello, I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Glad you are making us a part of your week, wherever you are in the world. Also want to thank our partner, Live Happy Magazine. Uh, The new issue is available now. Jillian Michaels on the front. All kinds of great information in there for you. We will have more on that coming up in just a moment. Want to thank our other partner, Life Reimagined. Their website, lifereimagined.org slash happy. It's got all kinds of things for you to try out as you make that journey toward your peak happiness as you awaken to the power of happiness so do your dreams so what's next well find out more at lifereimagined.org slash happy and joining us once again is our co-founder coo editorial director deborah heiss i just like saying that now (laughs) (laughs) we're just going through the entire thing uh mother uh spouse uh all these things Uh, we're talking today in this series about setting career goals and the subject in the article was our good friend chris libby who's fantastic writer he's done a lot of work even for this podcast helped us out with that immensely what makes him the type of person that needs help with setting career goals well, you know, Chris has uh, been with us from the beginning here at Live Happy. He's one of our fantastic editors. He manages the the front end of the magazine, really the now section. He does a lot of contributing to other articles. He's written some of our features. But when he sits down and you ask, he sat down and you ask him, where do you want to go with your career? It's kind of a, well, I don't know. Where should I go? What should my goals be? I think you have a classic case of somebody who loves what they're doing right now, is really engaged in it but hasn't really planned a future from it. So he, mm. you know, goal setting, if you're going to do a, 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 a piece on creating 90 days to a happier you piece, a lot of people are going to be struggling with what they want to do with their careers. What do they want to do long-term goal-wise? And um, he really stepped up and said, you know what? I think I could benefit from this. So um, that's really what it, what it was about. And, you know, not only, you know, focused on being present, but focusing on where you want to go was something he felt he could really work on. And visualizing and those sorts of things. People talk about like half your motivational speakers are talking about those sorts of things. So I think this could be very helpful. It's an interesting conversation. Uh, Live Happy Science editor Paula Phelps is talking with Caroline Miller, who's uh, been a pioneer with her groundbreaking work in the areas of goal setting and accomplishment and grit and happiness and success. And uh, she's recognized as one of the world's leading positive psychology experts on this research and how it can be applied to your life for maximum transformation and growth. Okay, I think the big question that we all want to know is, first of all, how did you develop such an interest in goal setting and how did you get so good at it? Um, Well, thank you for letting me come here and talk to you about my passion for goal setting. Um, I think it started for me as a child. I believe some of this is just my my DNA of being a competitor because it comes down through the family. We we had an Olympic gold medalist in the family, um, and there's just a lot of generations of people who strove for excellence. So um, I was not unlike that. Um, the problem is I took that competitiveness to the dark side and really found out um, how dark you can go with goal setting. And so I developed an eating disorder when I was 15. Um, I started to get better about eight years later. I wrote a book about it called My Name is Caroline. And really, at that point, began to be contacted by, I'm going to say, tens of thousands of people around the world who felt safe for the first time to share a secret with me, like, how did you do it? How did you get better? You know, what were the steps? And so I very formally became interested in goal setting in the um, late 1880s, early um, uh, 1990s. And I probably have read every goal setting book on the market. The difference between then 
And what happened to me 10 years ago at the, at the Penn MAP program when I got my master's in applied positive psychology is that I'd never heard of goal setting theory. And it was presented to us as an assignment. And I remember being so stunned that there was a science to goal setting after all these decades of talking about it, giving interviews about it, learning about it, um, right, buying every book about it. I did not know that there was a formal science to goal setting. So I Xeroxed the entire textbook. I was <laughs> so shocked. I, I remained so shocked that here it was, 2005. I'm in a profession that, that has goal setting as one of its first precepts. You're even evaluated as a competent coach around goal setting, and yet if you went into any room in any coach training in the entire world at that point, no one admitted to have hurting goal setting, goal setting theory. So just to finish that story, my capstone that year was, was the first connection ever between the science of goal setting um, and the science of happiness. And that book, Creating Your Best Life, believe it or not, became the first mass market book on accomplishing goals that had any footnotes, any evidence, any research. I mean, that was just eight years ago. It's like, are you kidding me? How did that happen? So um, not only am I passionate about it, I feel passionate about people learning about the nuances of goal setting because if you do, you really maximize your chances of accomplishing the goals that really matter to you. So I, I really feel like everybody has to be exposed to the science because it is there. It's out there. It's just nobody knew about it. Well, and I find it very interesting and, and refreshing that you do use the science of goal setting because a lot of what we see on the bookshelves, a lot of what you see on television, it's, it doesn't really get into the science mm -mm. of it. No. So can you kind of tell us um, some of the scientific theories of how to get what you want? Sure. Okay, so I'll just start with Locke and Latham's goal setting theory. And there's just um, one or two really critical things to take from this, but they're very, very important. And one is that all goals are not created equal. And so there are learning goals and there are performance goals. And it's really important to know the difference because a lot of parents who hear the next thing I, I'm about to say are going to just kind of shrink like I did, which was you should never, ever say to your child or even to yourself, do your best. Because if you say that and it's a performance goal, you're shooting for mediocrity and absolutely not going to achieve your best possible outcome. But with learning goals where you have no metric for achievement in that area, it's new to you, you've never learned it, you, don't, and you just don't have a roadmap for succeeding with it, that's the only time you can say do your best. So performance goals, you have a metric, you know what it will take, there's a way to evaluate getting warmer um, and colder, and you have to have measurement along the way. And the research further shows that you have to go out of your comfort zone. Challenging and specific goals, often that put you into a state of flow, will always get the best outcomes with performance goals. That's critical. So goal-setting theory, unbelievably fundamental. Second thing, um, one of the things that we learned early in our program is some new research at that time that showed that we succeed in life only after we're happy first. So that's a God, oh, are you kidding kind of finding because most of us go through life thinking, well, if I get this or I get that, you know, the right college, the right SAT score, the right girlfriend, the right house, the right job, I'll be happy. Well, the research shows that people have to be in their highest flourishing state emotionally in order to maximize chances of achieving goals. So you're happy first. Um, and then the third thing that I'm really kind of intrigued by is grit. So Angela Duckworth's work on grit. How do you up 
your chances of accomplishing hard goals? How do you maximize your grit factor? Um, and that's my next book because there's so much yet to learn about that. But, you know, those are just a few things. And if I could throw in a couple more, social contagion theory. It matters who is around you. And the one barometer of who should be around you is called active constructive responding. So if you tell someone your goals or an early achievement on the way to an important goal that feels tender and precious to you, and if they don't answer or respond with some kind of curiosity and enthusiasm, they should not be in your life, or they certainly shouldn't be on the front lines of goal setting. So you want people who are supportive and um, um, enthusiastic and curious. Um, and then priming. Um, I think I was the first person to dig up all this really cool research on priming. I, eight years ago, I suggested people change their computer passwords, um, get a vanity license plate, um, change the way you dress. Uh, change your screensaver. Um, do the things that when you encounter them, they prompt you to think positive, goal-directed thoughts. So it's all kinds of things you can do. But most people don't know we're being primed against our will all day by marketers and other influencers. So, you know, you know take a look at that chapter. Um, and I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop right there and see how I can amplify on any part of that. Sure. Well, let me uh, ask you the aspect of you have to be happy before you find success. And I think a lot of people are going to groan and be very disappointed <laughs> to hear that because, as you, as you noted, we tend to think, well, I'll be happy when. Right. So if, does this mean that someone is, who's not satisfied with their life right now isn't going to be able to find the, uh, reach the goals that they want to achieve? No. No, and that's a great um, clarification. So thanks, thanks for letting me kind of clarify that. So it's not that we have to be happy first, happy, happy, happy. It's about being at the um, top of our flourishing place. Um, because when you take your set point, because we all know there's set point theory, so we inherit a certain set point from our um, forebears, but we can up our well-being through positive interventions, exercise, journaling, gratitude, all of those things. You want to be in as positive a state as possible. It's not like you have to be nines or tens on a scale of you know one to ten, but when you are flourishing, you tend to have some of the strengths emerge that maximize chances of, of goal setting and, and success. One of them is you have more zest. People who score high in zest tend to pursue their goals longer, um, so they're more persistent. Secondly, happy people are more optimistic and hopeful. The state of being hopeless is literally defined as without goals. So you want to have hope. Um, you also tend to uh, basically connect with people. Think broaden and build theory, Barbara Fredrickson's work. You know, her question was, what's the evolutionary value of positive emotions? And one of the things she found that is in Broaden and Build Theory is that when you exhibit more positive emotions, when you smile, um, when you're kind, you tend to draw people to you in such a way that you build social resources. One interesting thing about gritty people is they tend to build teams around them. Gritty goals require long-term persistence, so you can't do those alone. So when you build connections with other people by having positive behavior, by being somewhat, you know, upbeat or at least curious about other people, you will maximize your chances of finding the resources and the people you need to accomplish your goals. That's terrific. And then that ties into what you were saying about the active constructive achievement. 
not all of us are surrounded by supportive people, and there are, uh, you know, you might be have a spouse who who's laughing at your goal of, you know, whatever it is that you want to achieve, and so in that situation, you can't really remove that person from your life. So what if your spouse, family, coworkers, whatever, are not that supportive team? How do you overcome that and still keep your eyes on the prize and meet your goals? That is that is one of the most valuable questions I get asked because it's always family members who don't support you. I wish I could tell you that the people who you're married to, who you live with, who you interact with socially, etc., are all going to be active constructive responders, but a lot of times it's your the people who are closest to you for whatever reason. Maybe they don't want you to change. It threatens them. You know, if you change, they've got to take a look at why they're not in some kind of proactive state. Um, and so the first thing I tell people to do when I have a worksheet called Bright Lights and Black Holes to just wake up to who is in your life who fits the, fits the bill of either active constructive or not. And um, I think once you kind of realize that, gee, your sister wasn't all that excited when you gave her your good news, and instead of thinking, well, she ought to be, I must have misread her, whatever it is, maybe think to yourself, that's not the right person to go to first. So you want to shield yourself. In goal-setting research, there's this important subset called goal shielding, where you really do need to shield your goals, particularly in early stages, from people who, for whatever reason, are not enthusiastic. They're not supportive. Maybe they don't even live the kind of lifestyle that would be supportive of you. They're not necessarily destructive. But again, think back to what I said about social contagion theory. You want to be surrounded by people who have the same kind of get up and go or their eye on the prize or they want to play bigger in life or whatever it is. So you want to be around people with those characteristics. But you want to contain the negativity. And this is what Barbara Fredrickson talks about. There are only two ways to change that ratio. One is to bring in as many positives as possible to kind of, you know, um, tamp down the negativity so you can get to five to one, for example. You know, Gottman's research at the Love Lab is the best relationships have five positives to one negative. Um, So try to bring in and buffer yourself with positive people. And the, the other thing to do is to reduce the negatives. And so that means caller ID, screen your calls. Screen your emails. Don't put yourself in the presence of Debbie Downers. You know, we all have them, and women have them more than men do. So a a survey from the Today Show and Self magazine showed, believe it or not, that 84% of women endure frenemies in their lives. Really? Yep. And you, Well, you, you guess why. Why do you think women do this to themselves? Is it because they don't want to disappoint the other person? That's close. It's because they don't want anyone to think they're not nice. Really? Yep. So talk about undermining yourself. And, you know, if you look at Adam Grant's research on give and take, what did he find? That the givers end up at the top of the success ladder and the bottom of the success ladder. And quite often I think women women have other women around them who are just not that nice. And they may give and give and give to them because they're giving to takers. Um, and so Adam Grant's book is a great look at how do you separate that out. But I think women are, are acculturated to think you've got to be nice. Everybody's got to think you're kind. Um, you know, there's even this, this cool new research on speaking while female. If you just speak, people think that you're too abrasive. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, come on. I mean, it's just absurd findings. It's the 21st century. But women are afraid to rattle the cage, uh, you know, to, to be forthright and um, 
you know what? My feeling is you've got one life to live. Set your goals. Make sure they're intrinsic. They're approach goals. I have a whole checklist in creating your best life about that. But surround yourself with people who deserve to make the cut. Don't waste your time on people who are, who are turning you away from what matters. Because here's the interesting research. This is, I, I ran up to Shelley Gable, who, who wrote this. Uh, she spoke at an IPA conference, and I was so transfixed by one of her findings that I went, ran up and grabbed her. It's like I'm a nerd running around grabbing these people. It's like, tell me more about your research. So she said something that I'd never heard before, and that was, the first person you share your good news with, the first person, so I call it the first responder research, the first person you share your good news with, their response may divert you from ever pursuing that goal again or coding mm -hmm. it as a negative thing in your head. And so I just wanted to be sure I heard her clearly. So I ran up and said, did I hear that clearly, that the first person could make or break your goals? Like if you're early in pursuing a book contract or, you know, changing your job or going for a degree, going back to college, whatever it is, if you tell somebody who's not an active constructive responder, you may completely give up and abandon that goal. She said, yes. So, you know, women who have frenemies around them, if you dare to share your desire to reinvent yourself, for example, with the wrong person, you may never return to that goal again. And I was looking at this research from the Urban Institute just this morning. And you know what they call middle-aged women right now? I mean, this is stunning. They call middle-aged women the lost generation. That's what they're calling us right now. We have epidemic levels of prescription drug abuse suicide, eating disorders, alcoholism, I mean, you name it. It is killing middle-aged women. And I think we absolutely cannot bear to tolerate what happens if we let frenemies stay in our lives. So, so it takes a, an adjustment on our way of thinking. Uh, you know, a lot of times we feel kind of subject to the input from the people around us. But we have to take responsibility for that as oh, yeah. well. You don't want to be a ping-pong ball in someone else's game in life. You know, if, if you've got to pursue your own goals with a certain amount of proactive zest and enthusiasm. Um, one thing I love about Dara Torres, when she was 41, she won a silver medal um, at the Olympics in 50 freestyle. And because she was, uh, you know, going after something the impossible, swimming against people less than half her age, at the peak of their athletic prowess, you could not get into her life in that last year before the Olympics unless you too believed that she could win an Olympic medal. I mean, that's how seriously she took it. And I think athletes pick up on these lessons sooner um, than other people because they have this window, compressed window, in which they can, you know, pursue their goals with athletic intensity and training and the rest of it. But you, you have to decide where you're going in life. Because if you don't decide where you're going, trust me, other people are going to decide whether they're priming you. Let's just say marketers, you go to the grocery store and the self-regulation research shows that by the time you hit the checkout counter, you, your self-regulation is totally shot because you've been saying no to yourself, yes to some things, no to other things. Why do you think they have the National Enquirer and soda and candy there? Because they know that you're more likely to give in at that point than when you first walk in. And so your life is going to be directed by things like that and other people's goals unless you consciously wake up and stop being asleep at the wheel and go for it. And sometimes I feel like my job as a coach is to just give people permission. They have dreams. They have goals. Maybe they've never really articulated them. One woman said to me, no one's ever asked me my goals. 
She said that to me. She actually wow. got tearful. And she said, not only that, no one's ever asked me a question like that and listened to the answer. So, I, you know, I feel strongly about mastermind groups, that people should be in groups that they form of other positive, proactive people who want to play bigger in life. doesn't have to be the same goals, but people with the same energy. You know, by the age of 50, most people have zest as a bottom five strength, which is shocking to me because it's so abundant in children. But by, by 50, again, let's go back to middle-aged women in particular, you know, they're, you know, the walking dead in some ways. So well, you, you bring up a really good point when you talk about their, their character strength. And can you tell me what role knowing your signature character strengths can play in setting goals? Massive, massive role. Okay. The first thing is, and, and I'm talking about the VIA character strengths. Um, people mm-hmm. might have other strengths tests they use, but my favorite's the VIA, and all my clients take it. But once you know your top five strengths out of 24, the research finds that you're actually happier. Why? Because it's a win. Once you get those top five, they're your top five. And then I always assign right behind the VIA character strengths, well, tell me a me, me at my best story. When were you at your best in life? Someone told you you made a difference, you had a breakthrough, you accomplished something you're successful at, and you saw all of your five strengths in play. Tell me about that time. And when people share that story with you and you respond again with curiosity and enthusiasm, that's called capitalizing, which prolongs well-being. So you share these positive stories. That becomes another win, that people remember a time and they replay it when they were masterful, when their strengths were involved. It also gives you a blueprint for how to use those strengths when you're pursuing goals. So if you show up as a person with, let's say, social intelligence or wisdom or teamwork, you want to take a look at how can you use those strengths in unique, maybe new ways that you've never tried before to pursue your goals and accomplish them because some research by Alex Lindley out of Great Britain found, I I think it was for the first time, that using your character strengths in pursuit of your goals not only makes you happier, it makes you more likely to succeed. So know your top five and know when you've used them in the right context, in the right dose, and use them in a smart way to pursue and accomplish the goals that matter to you. And then what about meaning? How, how important is it that your goals have true meaning to you? They're not something that you feel you should do or that other people want you to achieve. Right. So the fancy scientific word for that is intrinsic. So goals need to be self-concordant or intrinsic, which means nobody set those goals for you. You're not pursuing them because your mom and dad, your, your, your community, your husband, your wife, your kids. You're doing it because you want to do it. For example, you know, so if you woke up and no one was looking, it would matter to you and you'd pursue it. So those are also called approach goals. You want to be approaching a positive outcome um, that matters to you. And that's why I said ikigai a little bit earlier in this interview. You know, in Japanese, the word ikigai means that which I wake up for. So goals that are unique to you and intrinsic to you often feed into your purpose. You know, why are you here? What do you wake up for? What causes your feet to magnetically hit the floor and start moving forward? And the goals that are set by other people will never feel like that. It will be like walking through quicksand, and you won't even accomplish those goals. I mean, you won't enjoy them if you accomplish them. So the question I always ask people when they tell me their goals is, so what? So what? So what if you do that? What does it mean to you? What's the difference it will make in your life? So it has to pass the so what test. 
And if people can't explain it in a way that I understand it's absolutely what they want for themselves, not because someone else wants it, then I think I can join forces with them and say, okay, let's go. So I've often been (laughs) cited as saying the following shocking sentence, which is if someone comes to you and says, here are my goals, let's go, and some coach says, okay, let's go, that's unprofessional. It is so unprofessional because every goal should be scrutinized. So you have to go through the what's the so what, you know, let's leverage them. Um, Are they hard? Are they hard enough? Are they learning goals? Are they performance goals? But most of all, they'd better be your goals. Otherwise, what's the point? That's a really, really good point for everybody to hear and, and learn. And when we are looking at those goals and we decide which ones are ours, should should we set a series of small goals or should we have one big goal or, or which is which is the better approach? Well, one of the things I do is I use best possible future self as an exercise to really clarify what people's long-term goals are because if you ask people to spin themselves 10 years in the future um, and then you come back to the present day, that does a lot of very powerful, interesting things. It's an evidence-based exercise that really has lots of good fallout. One is that when you go into the future and you come back to the present, it's easier to, to figure out what the short-term goals are that you can set for yourself. So you should always have short-term and long-term goals that are connected and leveraged. You want the leveraged piece where if you pursue one, small goal, then it will build into a domino effect so it makes you more likely to get to um, the the long-term goal. Another thing that best possible future self does is it clarifies goals in conflict. Another big, you know, thing that people are not aware of is that people carry around often conflicting goals, but because they've never gotten them out of their heads and onto paper or even verbalized them, they don't realize that they can't pursue these two goals at the same time. So the research shows that you have to move one of them decisively up the priority ladder and down. So that's all part of best possible future self. Now back to the question of short goals. Yes, you want to have mastery experiences. Not everything should be delayed gratification. So that, you know, people with diligence and perseverance in their top five, they'll just slog along, you know, and sometimes they'll just have stupid grit and they'll just pound away at goals. But what you want to have are some things to to savor um, and enjoy um, meeting your goals and, and kind of the energy that comes from it and unpacking them. What did I do well? How can I do more of that? But you should always have long-term goals, always, always, always. And the research calls these possible selves. You always want to have possible selves in the future that you're moving towards. Terrific. You've given us so much to work with here, and I know there's so much more that you can teach us. How can our listeners learn more about goal setting? Where can they go? What should they pick up? How can they start this journey? Well, I'm a big fan of a book called Creating Your Best Life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that was my fifth book, but it, as I said, it's the first evidence-based book on goal setting. And uh, because it was published by Barnes & Noble, you can't get it on the Kindle, but you can get it on the Nook, um, or you can buy a hard copy. You can go to my website, carolinemiller.com. I have free worksheets, some of which I already mentioned today. Um, you can you know, buy the e-book and the book book off the site. And then there's so much more on my site that will direct you in a variety of ways. I have workshops. I have classes. I have so much, but I really do think everyone should be exposed to this science in one way or another if you really want to succeed in life. 
For more information on the 90 days to a happier you, you can check out the latest issue of Live Happy Magazine. It is on newsstands now, as well as the digital edition, which is available to you in the Apple App Store and on the Google Play Store. If there's anything you'd like to add to the discussion, feel free to do so. Reach out to us on Twitter at LiveHappy, Facebook.com slash LiveHappy, or on Instagram by searching MyLiveHappy. You can also send us an email, podcast at LiveHappy.com. For everyone at the Live Happy Now podcast, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and remember to always live happy.